Money FM 89.3. Best of your money. Money and me on your money. Only on Money FM 89.3. Singtel's Q4 profit falls 25.7%. What do investors need to keep in mind of its overall business? SGX shares have been hit after the announcement of an MSCI license expiry announcement. Last I checked, they were trading at $8.22, down about 6%. And U.S. Secretary Mike Pompeo has declared Hong Kong is no longer autonomous. Will investors be sensitive to any hints that U.S. exports from China uh, tariffs are going to be, you know, in the mix there? We're going to speak with Arun Pai, Chief Strategy Officer at Flow, to get his views on these issues and more. Arun, good morning. Uh, good morning, Michelle. How are you? I'm doing well. Good to have you with us, as always. Let's start with news that have caught investors' eyes. Singtel's Q4 profit falling 25.7% to $574 million. The drop in profits can largely be attributed to a one-time expense, a $300 million exception charge related to Singtel's stake in Barty Airtel. Given this, what do you think of the state of Singtel's overall business? How is it weathering the storm? Right. So it's an extremely interesting case study where uh, Singtel was obviously uh, the largest uh, telco company in uh, Singapore. And it was basically a duopoly for uh, many years uh, with StarHub. The problem, obviously, though, is for any equity investor, it's always about future growth. And we all know, you know, pretty much any company that's headquartered or based out of Singapore, you have to start expanding overseas because you just do not have uh, that massive a local domestic market. So if you kind of take like a step back and uh, see what the decision that Sintel made, Mm -hmm. I think it was early 2016 when they decided, okay, uh, you know, India through Bharti Airtel, it has a massive tailwind of a story, a great macroeconomic story. Uh, a massive local domestic population, everyone getting digitized, um, you know, the, the earning capacity of an average Indian person is definitely increasing. Uh, the whole Modi story was great. So they started making very large-sized investments into uh, Bharti Airtel in India. The problem, though, with that entire, and, and all of that was correct, right? Like, it, it's very easy to look, uh, you know, back in the rearview mirror and try and critique them. And I'm not trying to do that one bit. But it just so happened when you make investments, uh, it can obviously go well. And sadly, things can go poorly because of decisions that are out of your control. And in this case, a 500-pound gorilla with the name of Ambani showed up through his uh, geo company. And what he basically did was taking a lot of capital or a lot of money from his established uh, businesses through the entire reliance vertical of his, he pumped it all or a lot, substantial part of it into this uh, loss-making enterprise called Geo, uh, which is you know now India's largest uh, telco network by a long shot, and uh, managed through all of these freebies, uh, providing gigabytes of data, free talk time, etc managed to accumulate a user base of over 600 million people. 
And just when you thought this COVID situation, this COVID crisis might lead them to, uh, might lead Geo or uh, might curtail Ambani's uh, ambitions of being an even larger telco company, uh, because his existing, his other businesses were suffering quite substantially, he managed to basically pull a rabbit out of the hat, convinced Facebook uh, to take a massive stake in the company of close to 10%, and soon followed by that, KKR, uh, General Atlantic, Vista, basically the who's who of private equity companies have pumped in over $10 billion uh, into the business, valuing just Geo at over 70 billion US dollars. So now coming back to uh, Sintel, sadly the investment in Bharti Airtel did not pan out as to what they were expecting. They basically got crushed because of Geo. And uh, so now looking into the future of Sintel, obviously the Singapore market is saturated. Uh, Australia is one, of, is one of its other larger markets. But we were really expecting, or investors were really hoping that uh, India could be like its crown jewel uh, in Singtel's portfolio, and that has just sadly not panned out. And hence, you know, the shares taken quite a massive beating over the past couple of years. All right. Well, thanks for setting that in context for us. Let's take a look at another piece of news that was uh, really quite a shock uh, to the market. SGX shares were mauled yesterday on news that the Hong Kong Boers had struck a deal for a suite of MSCI indexes. So the Singapore Exchange yesterday saying it will discontinue its MSCI equity index futures and option contracts, save for those under the MSCI Singapore the license agreements are going to expire in February next year. It will, however, keep its partnership with New York-based global index publisher MSCI on MSCI Singapore Index products. SGX has estimated a conservative impact of 10 to 15 percent on its financial year 21 net profit on a pro forma basis. Last I checked, SGX shares are trading at $8.24, down 5.8 percent. So, Arun, first up, what do you think the loss of the of most of the MSCI contracts to HKAX? What does this mean for SGX's business? You know, it, it, it's really sad, I would say, Michelle, because this was a golden. And I, I'm not trying to say this in a disrespectful manner at all, mm-hmm. uh, but at the end of the day, it, we are a capitalistic uh, economy, and not to take advantage of your uh, neighbors. Uh, plight, but this was truly a golden opportunity for uh, the Singapore exchange to potentially become like the premier exchange in the Asian region. Mm. Obviously, I'm talking about, you know, Singapore versus Hong Kong, the heated rivalry that's been going on for many years, Mm. and it's obviously extremely saddening to see what's going on in Hong Kong. But from the perspective of uh, potential investors or investors in SGX, this was the ideal situation for them to really like hammer the point home where in spite of not having uh, the backing of a massive uh, domestic economy, the second largest in the world, Singapore can potentially try and hold its own. The current 6% drop follows a drop of another like 10, 12% that took place yesterday. Mm. And roughly the, you know, 20, 25% drop, it was trading at about $10 uh, prior to the announcement. Right now, as you were mentioning, trading at slightly over $8. It kind of correlates directly to uh, the expectations from management that this is going to take a hit of anywhere between 15 to 20%. I think what is sad, though, is uh, 
SGX had done a phenomenal job, and it was trading at quite expensive multiples, by the way, right? Like this was a 25 to 30 PE stock. Uh, now it's gone to like sub 20. Uh, so it, it had created this whole growth story by really focusing on the derivatives market. And obviously MSCI being a massive name in that space was providing huge tail tailwinds to that. But, uh, you know, just MSCI, uh, uh, MSCI Singapore is not going to be attractive enough, especially for many larger investors that are sitting outside of Singapore borders. Uh, which is, again, kind of sad because the number of other government initiatives that have taken place, like VCC, uh, the variable uh, capital company, to try and make Singapore compete against other offshore tax havens, like uh, rather than setting up a fund in Cayman or BVI, the Singapore government had basically laid out this red carpet to get fund managers to come and have their home base in Singapore, but also set up the fund administration and the whole host of other peripheral activities that are required for it. And it would have been great if, you know, the Singapore exchange could try and capitalize on that and, uh, you know, at the end of the day, make a lot of uh, money and assist the bottom line of the company. Sadly, that has not taken place. Uh, there have been comments from management saying uh, they do have a very robust uh, asset pool in terms of options specifically. So I'm really hoping that they can deliver on that over the next couple of quarters and, uh, you know, bring back the share price to where it was trading before, be it at decently high multiples. But at the end of the day, it's the only exchange in Singapore. So that does warrant some kind of a premium uh, to its share price. Yeah, shocking end. A 23-year relationship MSCI had with SGX. I'm going to get granular now. What does this news mean for investors? How do they access their equity index futures on the MSCI index and going forward? Right. So, I mean, as and when uh, the, the, the live ticker is going to obviously get disbanded, mm -hmm. uh, MSCI has struck a contract with Hong Kong. So from an investor's perspective, uh, as in a, a general investor's perspective, they will have access to uh, pretty much any either low-cost brokerage, DBS vickers, a whole host if you're you know elite enough to get into a private banking circle. You can just go up to your banker or your online platform and still you know continue your trade. The fact that it's listed in a certain exchange versus not will not impact investors in general, mm -hmm. but it will definitely, as we can see, impact investors off the SGX share price. All right. And that's been a bigger issue. Got it. Got it. Let's move now to big news. Uh, Mike Pompeo, U.S. Secretary, declaring Hong Kong is no longer autonomous. So losing special status with the U.S. means that Hong Kong could lose trading privileges, including lower tariffs with the mainland, with the world's largest economy. The decision on what Hong Kong could face ultimately rests on the decision of the U.S. president. Meanwhile, Donald Trump has indicated that the U.S. is working on a strong response to China's planned national security legislation for Hong Kong, which will be announced before the end of the week. So everybody wondering if, if the sanctions word is going to be used. There are fears that capital will flee Hong Kong. The currency remains resistant for now. Will investors be especially sensitive to any hint that U.S. tariffs on imports from China could rise? I mean, honestly, the way equity markets around the globe, including Hong Kong, Japan, uh, Asia in general today, 
they seem to be like shrugging off any news. And these are the same equity markets. If you go back to pre-COVID times, uh, you know, any kind of news about Hong Kong, uh, sorry, China and the U.S. was leading to massive gyrations uh, in the markets for obvious reasons, because you have the two uh, largest economies in the world uh, undergoing or in the middle of a massive trade war. Coming to Hong Kong specifically, right, like this is one of the many chess pieces on the board in the larger game of uh, U.S. versus China. And it's a really strategic, and obviously it's, it's a massive economy by itself, and it's a massive uh, strategic point that both the U.S. and China are trying to make an example of. China is not backing down, right? Like Xi, uh, he might not have like a voter base the way uh, Republicans versus Democrats have in the U.S., but he still needs to appease his uh, local population, especially potentially the more political hardliners within his party. So China is definitely not backing down against the Hong Kong uh, situation. And regardless of uh, COVID headlines, be it in Brazil and India right now, luckily having moved away from China and the U.S., uh, they are definitely still pushing down really hard to make sure that Hong Kong becomes a lot more of an integral part uh, of the larger ecosystem. The U.S. is obviously seeing that and they are not pleased because what they were hoping or expecting was that China would look at Hong Kong's example of seeing how well it's doing, being more open, uh, working with the Western powers uh, a lot closely, and they were hoping that China would follow suit uh, to Hong Kong's example. The odds of that were going to be extremely slim, in my humble opinion. But anyway, that, that's what I at least perceive uh, the U.S. was hoping for. The problem, though, in this, uh, talking about economic interests, right, trade of uh, goods and services just between Hong Kong and the U.S. is north of $70 billion. There have been, been something like, I think, close, slightly under 1,500 U.S. firms that are doing business in Hong Kong presently. So it's not like the economic impacts of, you know, potentially, uh, dare I say, the whole sanctions word coming into that uh, into the picture is not going to affect the U.S. The problem, though, is November is coming up, right? It's just like about six months away. And if we have seen anything from Trump, he is more than happy to take the short-term pain uh, or potentially even longer-term pain of proving to his local uh, stakeholders, his voter base, that he is going to be extremely aggressive against uh, China's domination, uh, be it politically, be it economically, in the world. And that could be something extremely concerning uh, to Hong Kong's economy that has already been battered down so badly because of the various protests. So they're kind of like stuck in the middle where if the U.S. starts placing sanctions on Hong Kong, that's obviously going to be a massive hit to the economy. It seems like the Hong Kong general population, uh, just based on the numbers of people who are uh, protesting right now, they are not happy with what China is doing to them either. So they're basically stuck in the middle of uh, these two massive uh, economies and their local economy is bound to suffer because of that. All right. Our thoughts go out to the people in Hong Kong, of course. If Hong Kong's status, though, is affected as a business hub, is Singapore an obvious beneficiary? Um, you would expect that to be the case. That being said, though, 
there's high possibilities that Shanghai will take over the mantelpiece of Hong Kong, mm. and potentially they might be creating a little bit more of not a special economic zone per se, because、uh, that's already the case. But then, but China might try and、uh, use or leverage Shanghai、uh, to become a lot more capital friendly to maybe not the Western powers、uh, for obvious reasons, but at least for the rest of the Asian region, which Singapore is taking,、uh, you know, taking full advantage of right now、uh, on the back of gro- the growth of Indonesia, Vietnam, Philippines, etc. So、uh, I think there's enough money. There's enough. A、uh, pool of assets for the entire、uh, for both Shanghai, Hong Kong, as well as Singapore, for everyone to rise on the back of that.、Mm-hmm. I think what's more important though is、uh, Singapore focuses as what it's doing right now.、Uh, it ensures that it keeps its borders as open as possible, and by that I don't mean you know the whole COVID situation. Obviously, I mean、uh, keeping its borders open in terms of Uh, transparency in terms of keeping corruption basically zero, in terms of attracting,、uh, maybe sadly given the lack of land size, it might not be manufacturing plants, but ensuring that on a financial basis,、uh, Singapore is still kept extremely strong, maintaining that fine divide between ensuring、uh, British law is still extremely prevalent over here,、uh, Western powers, Eastern powers, Asian powers. Everyone considers Singapore to be the Switzerland of、uh, Asia, and thereby being extremely neutral and being fair to all parties、uh, across the board, not taking sides necessarily, and forging its own path ahead. So I do feel,、uh, in spite of the COVID backdrop of、uh, these massive short-term、uh, hiccups or like bumps in the road. In terms of logistics and、uh, business conferences, travel, tourism, etc., I can definitely see a path that Singapore can do phenomenally well over the next five to ten years if they play its cards right. I'm speaking with Arun Pai. He is Chief Strategy Officer at Flow. I've been hearing a lot of investors express interest in silver. Arun, I know the、uh, gold price has fallen slightly.、Uh, silver's pop. The the silver gold ratio has dropped a little more than six full points in the past week. So, what do you make of that? Does the fall in gold, first of all, signal to you that investors are leaving defensive bets? And what do you make of trading in silver? Right, so I kind of like lump all of these metals together, to be honest. And I'm not sure. And we, you know, we've talked about this a bunch of times、uh, regarding my personal views on gold.、Mm-hmm. But what I would like to say though is, one of the biggest advantages you might want to say of these、uh, defensive metals, gold especially, because it doesn't have that much industrial use. Silver, on the other hand, does have a fair amount of industrial use. So you can envision a situation where Investors are looking to gain exposure to silver to take advantage of the fact that the economy seems to be rebounding, at least based on share prices, seems to be opening up, seems to be rebounding relatively quickly. Right. But taking a step back, though, I think the investors in general, as you were highlighting for gold, it's definitely、uh, it plays on the fear of investors, right? Like if you don't want to get involved in equities, you don't want to get involved in bonds.、Uh, one of the easiest Things for investors over the past like a hundred years has been to invest into gold. 
I think one thing to be extremely uh, cautious about in terms of metals is evaluating or making a judgment or a macroeconomic call mm -hmm. on whether there will be inflation or deflation. And that is something that sadly, you know, you can Google this and you can see a whole host of gurus on both sides of the equation. KKR came out saying, uh, KKR is a massive private equity company, mm -hmm. came out saying, look, I know a lot of capital has been released in this world, but the fact of technology and the massive demand collapse of COVID, we definitely foresee uh, deflation, at least for uh, the near future. And you have a number of uh, opposing views, uh, Howard Marks and a couple of others on the inflation angle, where they're saying, look, there is impossible to have so much capital, so much increase in money supply in the economy, and you don't envision a scenario where inflation doesn't take place. And I think that is going to be a massive uh, determining factor to where the prices of metals eventually end up. And I'm not talking about like the last week or the last uh, month even right. of uh, prices. It's the more longer term issue wherein you unleash or the Fed has unleashed this massive amount of US dollars. Mm -hmm. The flip side is you have China potentially having the ace in the hole, which is them having the, the doomsday nuclear option of sitting and selling uh, a large chunk of their US treasury thereby leading interest rates to spike up higher in the U.S., thereby leading a massive inflation to take place. And what effect will that have on gold? Whether people will flock towards gold as a, as a potential inflation hedge? Probably not. But on the flip side, as a potential way of hedging themselves against taking exposure to any currency, that's a high possibility. So it will be really interesting to see how these macroeconomic uh, wins in which direction do they move uh, rather than speculating on like one week, two week or a month or two months of the underlying price of metals which personally I find it to be extremely difficult. All right, I like the way you wove in that doomsday scenario there very, very subtly but there it was. <laughs> Sadly, have to mention it, right? Because like in this day and age, who knows what's going to happen, honestly, right? Like At least one so time per show from Arun. All right. Before I let you go, Arun, um, you know, it's been called a big bazooka budget, $33 billion, Singapore's fortitude budget aimed at helping workers and businesses tied over the COVID-19 crisis. Any investment plays come to mind when you look at what the Singapore budget supports? Um, it's specifically in Singapore itself, like I, I, you know, we talked about this earlier. I am a fan. Uh, I am a big fan of banks uh, based out of Singapore. I think their uh, balance sheet is extremely solid. And again, not trying to take advantage of uh, the misery or potential uh, downdraft of banks in neighboring countries, be it Indonesia, Philippines and Vietnam, who have their own whole host of issues to deal with. Mm -hmm. I do feel that uh, the government being the most stable over in, in Singapore, uh, the balance sheet being some of the strongest that I have seen in the region, uh, this could be a very interesting opportunity for uh, banks, especially the larger ones like your DBS, UOB, OCBC. So I do feel that the budget provides obviously a lot of support to uh, the citizens and the PRs of Singapore. But in addition, there is, uh, overall, not just the fortitude budget necessarily, but over the last four budgets, there's been a lot of support to uh, corporations 
done via banks. So in a very, not even in a subtle, I would say, in a very blatant manner, the government is trying to backstop the fact that there will, that there will be a tremendous increase in non-performing loans on the bank's balance sheet. So with government support, I'm hoping that, uh, you know, like banks can take advantage of the situation. We've seen DBS coming out saying they'll be hiring 2,000 new hires over the course of just this year because they are presumably seeing opportunities to take advantage of the situation. We are seeing digitalization becoming a much more massive play uh, given that, you know, people don't want to touch cash that's going around touching other people's hands. Right. Just a very simple example of yeah. that. Like, uh, and, and these technology systems, and you can see that in terms of share prices of like AEM holding, uh, UMS holding, they've rallied substantially, uh, decent uh, dividend yields, uh, trading at slightly elevated multiples, yes, but uh, if push comes to shove and investors are forced to make a choice of investing in bonds that are basically giving you 0%, hence obviously that's out of the equation, or getting into some smart semiconductor uh, slash technology plays slash potential financial institution, those are the sectors that I would take a look at, not just in the back of the budget, but just generally what's been occurring or happening in the economy in Singapore and the world in general. Well, we've had lots of great insights from you today. Appreciate your time. Thank you so much, Arun. Thank you, Michelle. He's Arun Pai, Chief Strategy Officer at Flow, with us here on Money and Me. Before acting on the information on Money FM, please consider if it's suitable for your own investment objectives, financial situation, and risk tolerance. To listen to more great interviews, download our podcasts at moneyfm893.sg or download the SPH Radio app available on Google Play or the App Store.